Gracious Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would attend the proclamation of your word, that as we come to you in faith, we might hear your voice, that you might speak in ways that bring transformation and life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, it is good to be back with you at King's. It's been uh, a few months, and uh, Nancy and I actually come from just down the road in Columbia where uh, our diocese gathered for Senate, and Lawrence and Bob were there representing King of Kings, and it was a good time, a good time of worship together, a good time of fellowship and encouragement in our mission and our common life together. Uh, in the body of Christ, in the Diocese of the Carolinas. And be assured that I not only bring greetings to you, but I also uh, bring uh, the prayers of God's people for you. God's people throughout the Carolinas, your brothers and sisters in Christ, are praying for you uh, in this season of transition uh, in which uh, you find yourself. We are so thankful for your leadership, for Eric and Fred and Ted and the Vestry and the search team and and the ministry leaders and and the whole, I think, really important idea for us that that, uh, without a rector, a church actually goes on. That it's not dependent on a person or uh, a, a clergy, but the body of Christ is the body of Christ and the people of the body of Christ are the ministers. And that we minister to one another and we serve one another and we continue to reach out into our community and share the love of Christ. So uh, I am confident that God has very, very good things in store for you at King of Kings. And that's how I'm praying. And I'm very, very confident that God has good things that he wants to do through you. For this community. So our Exodus uh, 20 reading this morning records the, the, the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses. I, I saw a cartoon uh, earlier this week that suggested that Moses was way ahead of his time. He was standing there with the stone tablets and he comes down and addresses the children of Israel and he says, these have been downloaded onto my tablet from the cloud. <laughs> Well, obviously, that was a huge moment in salvation history. God meeting Moses on that mountain, God revealing his law, his standard to his people. First four commandments we know have to do with our relationship with God. The next six have to do with our relationships with one another. Jesus in his earthly ministry was asked, how would you... Uh, sum up the law. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, didn't summarize, didn't condense it. He actually expounded the commandments of God in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it of old that you should not murder, but I say to you, anyone who has anger against his brother is liable for judgment. This notion that God has revealed to us his standard. 
And if we've read our Bibles, if you're at all familiar with the story of Scripture, the sweep of the biblical story, okay, you don't even have to read your Bibles. If you watch the news, you realize that we have a problem. That the standard of God, the commandments of God, uh, we are confronted with them, we know them, we may have memorized them, we may have worked hard to fulfill them, but at the end of the day, even if we're just honest with ourselves, we realize that, that we can't live up to them, that we don't live up to them that we have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we do not love our neighbor as ourselves. There is a problem. We fall short. It's part of the the Lenten message. I think these readings are, are here for a reason. We have to deal with the crisis, the reality that, that we're broken, that even as God has revealed to us what is just and right and what is holy and what Paul is to go on to say is a good, the law itself, we have a problem. Frederick Buechner said it this way very simply, the good news is bad news first. And in order for us to really hear and really take hold of the good news that's ours in Jesus Christ, we have to come to grips with the bad news. And the bad news is, is that when we're confronted with the law of God, we can't do it. It was in our colic this morning that we prayed for the day. We're powerless in and of our own self to fulfill God's righteousness. So we fast forward to the time of Jesus, to this gospel reading we heard in John chapter 2, where John tells us of the time, and there may have been more than one time, uh, that Jesus went in and, because it's in synoptic gospels in a different place, it may have been all one event, we're not exactly sure. John wasn't as concerned with chronology as the synoptic gospels were. But Jesus goes into the temple, he makes a whip, and he drives the folks out who are money changers, those who are selling pigeons for sacrifice there in the temple. Now, to me, as I read the Gospels, this is a moment in which Jesus is, is in a way, uncharacteristically Jesus. I mean, usually Jesus is cool and calm, and Jesus, you know, reaches out to the demon-possessed and, and, and brings peace, and he calms storms, and, and when he's questioned and attacked throughout the Gospels, he, he always seems to keep his wits. But, but in this story of Jesus cleansing the temple, he is uncharacteristically Jesus. He's really upset. And those folks knew it when those whips were coming through. I was thinking, maybe that's why folks don't sit up at the front of church. I, you know, are y'all afraid? <laughs> no, no. So, so <laughs> Jesus drives out the money changers, those who were selling, who were in there for business and for gain. And he said this, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then John tells us, that the disciples remembered that Messianic Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. That Jesus is living out what the prophets, what the psalmist had, had envisioned 
in the Messiah, that he would have zeal for God's house. It was a messianic prophecy. And Jesus is living out that zeal, driving out the money changers. Fast forward now to our generation. There are so many images for those of us who are old enough to remember. It's hard to believe it's, it's been 16 years, 9-11. There are so many images that endure in the corporate memory of America and of the world. And one image for me after the destruction of the World Trade Center that endures, and you may remember this, were the walls close to the towers where people put posters up of their loved ones. And they had the title, Missing. Missing. And, and you can imagine the heartbreak of the mother or the father or the husband or the wife or the sibling or the friend or the roommate or whoever for the person that was missing in the rubble. Gone, vanished. Are they alive? Are they not? Putting out, hoping, desperately crying. Somebody help me find this person. The desperate attempt of heartbroken friends to find those whom they loved. Strangely, I think this is a window into our Lord's heart in the temple when he drove out the money changers. That what we're seeing there is his heart for what was missing in that temple. The scholars tell us that those money changers, those merchants who were selling pigeons and other things for sacrifices had, had actually taken over the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was the place where the nations could come into the Father's house and, and have some access and some approach to the living God, to the creator of the universe. You remember that long before Moses was Abraham, and that when God called Abraham, he said to him this, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Israel, time and time again in the Old Testament story, forgot their vocation. They forgot why they were being blessed. They forgot what they were on this earth to do, and it lived itself out in spades in the court of Gentiles of the temple that Jesus made that whip and drove out the money changers. Because the one place, the very purpose that God blesses his people is in order that they might be a blessing. That they might share the good news, the grace, the forgiveness. Their relationship with the living God. And Jesus' heart was broken because that had been lost 
the Gentiles were missing. It had been corrupted somehow in the story of Israel. Israel wasn't loving God. Israel wasn't loving its neighbor. The law was broken. The people were broken. And if the overthrowing of the money changers revealed our Lord's heart, what followed after that uh, revealed our Lord's mission. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you do Will you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, well, wait, this took 46 years to build the temple and you will raise it up in three days. And then John goes on to say, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. This portion of John's gospel reveals Jesus' heart, but it also points to his mission, why he was coming, that there will be a time in which he goes to a cross. It's not said explicitly here, but he will die and the Father will raise him. In three days, he will rebuild the temple. That Jesus' mission was to usher in a new day. Jesus' mission was to usher in a new way. The law had not proved itself able to save us. Paul talks about this in our epistle reading today. The, the relationship of the law to, to us as followers of Jesus, us as new covenant people. And Paul's quick to say, remember, the law is good. The law is holy. The law is righteous. The problem isn't with the law. Even though it's been proven unable to save us, the reason is not the law itself. The reason is in us. The reason is our own sin nature, our own fallenness, our own brokenness. We're just not able to fulfill the law. And so we can't make the law the culprit. We have to uh, own up to the fact that we're the culprit. That our own brokenness, the inward curve in us, the self-centeredness and self-occupation and self-serving part of our flesh. And Paul's not talking about the flesh that we can touch. He's talking about our inward nature, our brokenness within. And he says the law actually is our friend at the end of the day because the law reveals this sin. The The law reveals our need. The law even stimulates our sin. It provokes it in a sense. Paul says, I, you know, I didn't know what it was to covet until the law said, don't covet. And then all of a sudden I found myself coveting. You know, there, there's a problem here. And the law condemns sin. It doesn't leave us with any excuse. So these readings find their way into our season of Lent, into this journey that we're in as we approach the cross, the passion, the death, and ultimately the resurrection of our Lord. 
And the reason they're here, the reason they're in Lent, because this is the story. This is the story of our lives. This is the story of the sweep of salvation history. This is the journey we must take if we are to come to the end of ourselves. Which is the reason God gave this law. That we might know our need for a Savior. That we might know to some extent just how daggum broken we are. That we might come to the one who the Scripture says, while we were yet sinners, still loves us still pursues us, still has that zeal for his Father's house that he might call us to himself. It's the journey that Paul took. Paul describes the conflict in this Romans 7's passage. He said, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous. Uh, did that which is good then bring death to me? No. Paul goes on, verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. Here's the conflict, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. Paul's not talking past tense. He's talking in the now. He's talking about his life as an apostle. This was Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees. This was Paul who said, with regards to the law, he actually says this in Philippians, I was blameless. From the outside looking in, you would look at Paul's life as a good Jew in his time and say, he's fulfilled the law. And yet Paul, speaking of his own state, says, not at all. He says, I was a mess. I am a mess. I'm in conflict because I actually want to do the right thing. He was a Christian. His heart, his inward being, the law of his mind was in conflict, he says, with the law of flesh with this sinful nature. And there's this conflict that's waging. And Paul's journey is our journey. It's the human journey. It's what we all come to at some point if the Lord allows us, if he reveals it, if he's wooing us. And ultimately, it brings us to a cry of despair. Wretched man, verse 24, that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? It's a cry of despair. It's part of our journey. It's part of what the Lord does with us. And it's not the immature Christian who says this. Actually, the unbeliever thinks that they're pretty righteous. And when we're young in our faith, we think we can actually do things. But the more mature and grown we are in Christ, the more we start to sound like Paul. The more we enter into that cry of despair. And the more we come to appreciate the cry of dereliction that Jesus uttered on the cross. My God, my God. 
Why have you forsaken me? As he takes upon himself the sin of the world in order that in three days he might rise again. That he might take upon himself the penalty of our sin in order that we might take upon ourselves the power of his resurrection. And so Paul takes us to, through, to that cry of despair. It's followed by a cry of triumph. Thanks be to God, verse 25, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who will deliver us. The person of Jesus Christ. And that, who, that is who has delivered us. And so now, having cleared the temple, he's made room for the nations to access the very presence of the Father, to approach God, to experience his rescue. And as you read on in the epistle to the Romans, this conflict between the law of the mind, kind of the, the, the inner being versus the law of the flesh, the conflict switches and it becomes a conflict now between the spirit and the flesh because the Lord Jesus Christ has poured out his spirit into our lives in order that we might conquer sin, that we might conquer the urges of the flesh, that we might walk in the power of his spirit, that we might find triumph in the name of Jesus. Dear brothers and sisters, it is the mature follower in Jesus that understands our wretchedness the insidious nature of sin, our powerlessness to live righteous lives in our own strength. It is the mature believer that sees our need for a Savior. And that's the greatest thing the law can do for us. They didn't realize it when Moses came down off of that holy mountain. But it led us to a Savior to the grace of God's forgiveness, to the reality of his love, to the power of his healing touch. It leads us to Jesus, to the gift of the Holy Spirit, and to the very presence of God the Father. Let us pray.